As I mentioned earlier, it's uh, All Saints Day. It's always on November 1st, um, but every once in a while it happens to align with a Sunday as it does this year. And we're also two days away from an election. And so on All Saints Day, we are being invited to link arms with Christians from every nation and every race and every community to transcend, in a sense, national and political and denominational boundaries in a common confession of faith. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. On All Saints Day, we remember that the Christian faith is, at its very core, a shared faith, a common union in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's deeply personal, but it's never completely individual. It's given. It's a passed-on faith. It's proclaimed and it's heard. It's received and it's shared. To be a Christian is to find oneself in a stream of living water, to use a different image. To take one's place in a living history of a living faith, of a living community. To be assured of the things that are hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. See, Christians know that the events and the happenings of this world have real significance, and we shouldn't overlook them. Real votes are cast, real decisions made, real consequences followed, real people affected. Yet Christians also know that their hope does not ultimately rest in the kingdoms of this world. Why are you downcast, O my soul, says the psalmist? And why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God? for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see, Christians have the audacity to hope, even in the most tense and confusing and difficult of circumstances, because they believe that they know the end of the story. They know the destiny of the world. They know Revelation chapter 12, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so it's this confidence this sure hope and this, this joy that comes out of that hope that emboldens the followers of Jesus in every time and every place to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with their God, even if it costs them something. And it's this confidence and this sure hope and the joy that comes out of that hope that encourages the followers of Jesus in every time and place to endure, to not lose heart to continue following and proclaiming Christ the Lord, even if it seems the world is a confusing and unpredictable place. See, this morning, we're invited on All Saints Day to partake of a holy history of the holy people of God. And if there's anything that has defined the people of God in every season, every situation, it's the desire to pray. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus encourages us to pray, to do what the saints have always done, to pour out their hearts before the Father with the simplicity and urgency of a child. Ask, says Jesus, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Notice the ascending order of urgency. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
Now, given what we hear elsewhere in scripture about prayer, like in James chapter four, that there is such a thing as praying with wrong motivations or for wrong reasons, or in first John chapter five, where it says we, we can pray for the wrong things that are out of line with God's good and righteous will. But given that we know these things are said elsewhere in scripture, we, we come to this passage utterly shocked by the unconditional character of Jesus' promises. I mean, there's a danger in interpreting Jesus' words in kind of wooden or mechanical way to mean that we're going to get whatever we ask for when we ask for it, as if Jesus is some sort of like heavenly Santa Claus or genie in a bottle. But there's also an opposite corresponding danger in not feeling the full force of this open-ended invitation from Jesus. Here, I think Jesus speaks particularly to those who are reluctant to ask, and he offers them the open-ended gift of prayer. Now, for some of us, asking feels risky because it means giving up total control of one's life of a circumstance or a dream or a relationship or a vocation or an emotion. To ask is to acknowledge that I am in need and I need help from another. To ask is to acknowledge that my life and my joy and my fulfillment depends on the generosity of another. To ask is to acknowledge that I cannot provide for myself or others, that for which we most deeply long. And so there's a risk in asking, because one has to give up control. For others of us, asking feels risky for another reason, because we are very aware of just how dependent we are. For some of us, we feel wounded or beaten down or left fragile and fatigued by the circumstances of life. And to ask is to risk the disappointment of maybe not receiving a venture that if we're really fragile and fatigued just feels too painful to even risk or bear. So better not ask than to ask and not receive. See, I think Jesus has a special word for those who feel the risk of asking. And he wants to encourage us into that risk. How does Jesus then go on to encourage us? Well, by telling us about the character of the Father. Verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Here Jesus is encouraging us to view the act of prayer from God's parental perspective. Then he goes on, if you then, though you are evil, like they, though you are really broken by sin, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, then like how much more will your, your father in heaven who is not touched by sin and in whom there is no shifting or shadow due to change, how much more will he give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, as always with Jesus, he takes us straight to the heart of the matter. It's God. Who is God? Not our troubled thoughts about him, not our fickle feelings about him, not our broken images of, images of him, but God, who God is as he really is. You see, the, I think the emphasis of this passage in the Sermon on the Mount is not so much on our persistence in prayer as it is on the Father's readiness to give to those who pray. The Father, Jesus wants us to know, is good and therefore he is generous. 
Note the order there. He is not good because he gives, but he gives because he is inherently and eternally and antecedently good in himself. The father's generosity, in other words, is an expression of his fatherly goodness. And his gifts are the same way. According to Jesus, God's gifts reflect the character of the giver. God does not give inedible and unnourishing gifts to his children, a stone instead of bread. Nor does God give harmful and poisonous gifts to his children, a snake instead of a fish. See, I think what Jesus is trying to do here is not kind of strong arm us into praying and being persistent as if we need to knock down the doors of God's goodness in order to, for him to be generous to us. No, what Jesus is trying to do is correct our vision of who God is in such a way that our hearts are just naturally drawn to respond to who he is by depending on him in simple and humble prayer. He's correcting our vision of God here. Yeah, I think much spirituality today is plagued by what we might call an implicit voluntarism. God is conceived primarily in terms of the will, an unfettered, omnipotent, and sometimes arbitrary will. He does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. And the fact that God can do anything is completely unquestioned. But the fact that God always does what is good is quite often questioned. And so what happens when we see God primarily through the lens of, of an unpredictable will, then we are left guessing about God's kind of mythical will for our lives as if he's, we're playing a game of cat and mouse to some extent. So prayer becomes, in a sense, this trying to discern the indiscernible and uh, mystery of what is God's will for our life, as if he's kind of holding it back until we knock hard enough to figure out what it is. But that's not how the communion of the saints or the ancient historic Christians ever viewed what prayer is about. They thought through things in exactly the opposite direction. And the reason for this is that when they thought about God, they began by considering not necessarily the divine will, but the divine goodness, the metaphysical and moral excellence of his nature and his character and his being. And then it was only after they considered divine goodness that they would go on to consider the omnipotence and the freedom and the activity of his will. It was as if to say for them, God is good. And therefore, whatever he wills, he always wills the good. And since God himself is the supreme good, then God's will for creatures is that they would come to glorify and enjoy him as their supreme good. God supreme in all our affections, and we satisfied in all his perfections. And so in this case, prayer becomes not so much trying to figure out what God's hidden will for our lives is, but it becomes an act of entrusting ourselves to the goodness, the bedrock foundational basic goodness of his life that upholds and sustains all things. I love the way that A.W. Tozer put it in his little book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind and cordial and benevolent 
and full of goodwill towards people. By his nature, says A.W. Tozer, God is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. God is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. See, what I think Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount here is drawing our hearts and our minds to divine goodness, filling our sails with the winds of divine goodness. And what that does is it flips the question on its head when it comes to prayer. The question is not, has your persistence in prayer persuaded God to give yet? But the question is now, has God's readiness to give persuaded you to ask yet? See, there's something, according to Jesus, about the depth of the goodness of God's character that draws us, just, just draws us to him in prayer. Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a Jesuit priest and theologian in the 20th century, wrote this wonderful book on prayer. It's a lovely book on prayer. And he starts off the book like this. He says, prayer is something more than an exterior act performed out of a sense of duty, an act in which we tell God various things he already knows, a kind of daily attendance in the presence of the sovereign who awaits morning and evening the submission of his subjects. Prayer is more, he says. Somewhere, here or there, is a hidden treasure in prayer. If only we can find it and dig it up. A seed, says von Balthasar, that has the power to grow into a mighty tree bearing abundant fruit and lively flowers. If only we could plant and cultivate it. What is this hidden treasure in prayer? What is it that God is fond of giving to those who ask? We've considered the goodness of the giver, but what does the goodness of his gifts really look like and consist of? Well, there's a lot of particularity to this in the texture of our individual lives and places. But scripture, I think, is clear about at least four gifts. So I would like to spend the next few minutes considering these gifts. The first gift that God is fond of giving is wisdom. And oh, how we need wisdom in this season. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The gift of wisdom. God loves to give the gift of the kingdom also. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure. Notice that word again. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. According to St. Paul, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so that leads us to our third gift, not just wisdom and the kingdom, but the indwelling and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, if you then who are evil, paralleling the same passage in the Sermon on the Mount, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give 
the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. In other words, Jesus is saying, what is the good gift that God most desperately wants to give to people? It's God himself, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. As the creed says, the Lord, the giver of life, the indwelling and empowering presence of God. Uh, in Augustine's book, The Confessions, which is one of my the first 10, 15 pages of that, maybe some of my favorite pages of literature and, that I've ever read. Augustine considers, how is it that God, the creator of heaven and earth, can indwell me, his creature? And he says, how shall I call upon my God, my God and my Lord, when by the very act of calling upon him, I would be calling him into myself? He's thinking of Jesus' words here. Is there any place within me into which my God might come, says Augustine? How should the God who made heaven and earth come into me? Is there room? And then famously, a little bit later in his confessions, Augustine goes on to pray and he says, The house of my soul is too small for you to enter, O Lord. Would you make it more spacious by your coming? It lies in ruins, rebuild it. Some things are to be found there which will offend your gaze. I confess it to be so and know it well. But who will clean my house that you may dwell there? There is no one but you, O Lord. There is no one but you. God loves to give wisdom. He loves to give his kingdom. And he loves to give himself, the Holy Spirit. And finally, God loves to give the inheritance of the saints. In our Ephesians chapter 1 reading, Paul prays that we might know that the Holy Spirit might reveal to us the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. He says a similar thing in Colossians chapter 1. He gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And we get a picture of this inheritance that is ours in Revelation chapter 7. John says, and, and, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And here he describes those saints that are a part of our inheritance. A multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The ultimate end of all our prayers and labors is this inheritance of praise, a vast, multicultural, symphonic inheritance of praise. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And so, my brothers and sisters, we are on the, the heels of Halloween. We're heading towards an election day. And what we gather today to proclaim is that light, not darkness, is and will be the final word in the world.
and we gather to proclaim to the world that the whole world is heading towards this symphonic work of praise. And we offer to God now that praise which he so wonderfully deserves for all of his goodness and his loving kindness toward us. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>